Amen, amen. You can take that. I'll give it up for Daylene. That was good pronunciation, all right? That was good, good work. You're going to be so mad because I'm not talking about those rivers at all tonight. Um, so <laughs> that's incredible. Uh, cool. Well, hey, guys, uh, like Daylene said, my name is Rudy. I'm really glad you're here. I actually really can't wait for next week. Akua and I are going to be doing a shorter teaching, but we're going to be doing a teaching together for, for Christmas. So it's going to be a sweet uh, time. Tonight is our last full message in our series that we've been walking through for the last several weeks called Dwell. Uh, if it's your first time here tonight, super grateful that you're here. You are coming in at the end of a series, so I'll, I'll catch you up a little bit. We've, we've talked through uh, dwell, this idea of what it means to experience life with God wh wherever you are. And we've talked about practicing solitude with God, reading the, the Bible and meeting him, him there, prayer, worship. Last week, Jared, talking about temptation, like the reality of needing to experience life with God in the middle of the real things of life, such as Temptation, knowing our identity, knowing our enemy, and knowing, knowing the word. Um, tonight, I want to take us somewhere that um, may seem a little odd, <laughs> but I, I dare say is, is an under-discussed topic that is really important. Tonight, I'm going to focus on uh, something that Jessica Price-Jones says you will spend right about 90,000 hours of your life doing. Uh, it's ten and a half years back to back if you did nothing else other than this. Comes in just behind sleeping and breathing. You want to take a guess at what that is? Maybe that 90,000 hours gave it away. Eating. You spend 90,000 hours eating? <laughs> That's so much. <laughs> I'm sorry, like I'd love to do that. I respect you for that if you, if you could. What? What? Working. Working. Tonight we're, we're talking about Working. If you want to title it, we're going to be talking about dwelling and, and your vocation. Dwelling and, and what you do. I've been looking forward to this week since we first started the series because I actually believe our tagline for the series, Dwell, is true. That you can experience life with God wherever you are, including where you work and, and as you work and how you work. Including that 90,000 hours. And that was done, that stat, by the way, is from 2010. So I would argue probably more like 100,000 hours of your life that you will spend working. Not only do I believe that you can dwell with God in, in that space, I think that it's essential that we do and that we learn how to and that we, we talk about it. A great disservice was made uh, many years ago by the introduction of something and kind of like proliferation of something called the sacred and secular divide. Maybe, maybe you've heard of that, maybe you haven't, but I can almost guarantee that you've, that you've felt it. It's this idea that the sacred parts of life are kind of kept over here and the secular parts of life are kind of kept over here and we separate what is sacred and secular. This flies in the face of the Bible, by the way, which teaches that there is the world in the middle and that Christ is crowned king over it. Sacred and secu secular coming together. But this idea of a divide creates this separation that is really uh, unhealthy. It creates this idea that there are actions that are sacred over here and secular over here. Relationships that are sacred and secular. And essentially, uh, and, and eventually, sorry, vocations and, and lines of work and ideas of work that are sacred or secular. Is it number of factors that led to this in history, but the result of it is kind of this odd, uh, undefined, yet I would argue at times like antagonistic relationship between church and vocation, between like being with God and working. Dorothy Sayers wrote an article in 1942 um, in the middle of World War II, really interesting article called Why Work, uh, and as she writes about it, she, she actually says this, so it'll be up on the screen here. Nope, that one. Okay. It, she says, in nothing has the church so lost her hold on reality 
as in her failure to understand and respect the secular vocation. She has allowed work and religion to become separate departments and is astonished to find that as a result, the secular work of the world has turned to purely selfish and destructive ends and that the greater part of the world's intelligent workers have become irreligious or at least uninterested in religion. But is it astonishing? How can anyone remain interested in a religion that seems to have no concern with nine-tenths of his life spent at work? The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisurely hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon his vocation is that he should make very good tables. Like, she's saying that we should actually care as a church about how we, we, we work. We should care because... The Lord does. Annie Dillard says this. I love this quote. She says, how we spend our days is how we spend our lives. By not talking about how to dwell with God in our vocation, how to experience life with God wherever you are, including your work, there is a great danger in reducing that 90,000 hours of your life into some sacred time over here and all of that secular time over here. And separating what you do in here in rooms like this or in small groups or whatever from your life outside of, of rooms like this. And what it does is it creates this idea that what you do in rooms like this doesn't actually impact your life outside of these doors. And nothing could be less true. It's not that reading the Bible is sacred and your work is secular. It's that life, even the parts of life that are incredibly material, like school and work, are actually far more spiritual as a whole than we often give them credit. The problem is that without thoughtful approach, we often fall into attitudes towards work that in different and unique ways are destructive. Not just to our life in general, but specifically to our life with God, we approach work in a way that leads to a dismantling of life, not a dwelling life with God. So here's what we need. We need a bigger vision for vocation. And I'm convinced that we're offered one by God. That his vision for our vocation is that we would dwell with him in it. That what we do with our days really would be what we do with our lives. And that there wouldn't be a single part of our day in which we did not at least think it was possible to dwell with God in it and to experience life with him wherever we are. So to that end, we're going to get after it tonight a little bit, Salt Company. Note takers, this is going to be a message that you're going to love. If you're not note taker, maybe take out the phone and put the notes app open because we're going to get into some stuff. Uh, we're going to dive into vocation as seen in the first few chapters of the Bible. Then we're going to address three attitudes towards vocation. And then I'm going to give you three practices to live into God's bigger vision for our vocations. So let's, let's get after it. First, number one, what is vocation? It would be sufficient to say that vocation and work could be used interchangeably. And I, I will use them interchangeably tonight. But vocation classically has a deeper meaning than simply work. Lester uh, DeCoster sums up work nicely by defining it as the form in which we make ourselves useful to others. It's a good definition of work. And work is a part of vocation, but it's not the whole of it. Vocation comes from this Latin word that uh, translates directly to calling. Which can kind of be a Play-Doh word at times. You, you hear people say, I'm called to this. And it can kind of feel like an excuse to do whatever they want and put God's stamp on it. Um, my friend Mark, um, I just want to get some, do some, a little work on calling real quick. My friend Mark uh, lays out calling as a present reality in five areas of your life. Uh, they'll be up here on the screen. Christ, core relationships, career, church, and community. Your calling could very simply be articulated 
by identifying your relation to these five things. Go to the next slide. This would be my calling right now. This is Rudy Hartman. I am a man in Christ, loving and serving my wife, Molly Hartman, a directional leader with Salt Company IFC in our youth ministry here. I'm a member of Doxa Church, and I get to love my neighbors in Meadowbrook, which is our community on the west side of Madison. That is my calling. That, that's what, that, that's my, if you want to get into it, that's my vocation. My, my career, my work is a part of that, but that collectively makes up my vocation. Maybe yours might read a little more like this. I'm a woman in Christ. This isn't me. Uh, I'm a woman in Christ. Learning how to love your parents who are separated. Working on a degree in photoaquatic plant biology at UW. Serving and attending Doxa Church as you get to love your neighbors on Mifflin. Christ core relationships, career, church, and community. Calling has a lot to do with where you are at right now. It's a gift from God to ground you in your present reality. And a part of our calling, what often is the leading edge when we think about our calling is, and when we think about vocation is, is work. As a student, as a part-time employee, as an entry-level job, what we do with our days is what we do with our lives. In fact, the text that Daylene read, Genesis 2 verses 8 through 15, in that we actually see work as a key part of life with God seen in the Garden of Eden from the very beginning of the Bible. God creates, he places Adam in a garden that he's planted where everything is provided for him just as Daylene read. But in chapter 2 verse 15 we see something really interesting. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and to keep it. So go with me here for a second. Adam is taken and placed in the garden, which is a whole sentence. We don't have time to really unpack everything that's there. And God puts him in the garden to work it and to keep it. If you know the timeline of the first three chapters of the Bible, chapter 1, kind of a 30,000-foot view of creation. Chapter 2 hones in on the creation of mankind. Chapter 3, the fall of man due to sin that separates us from God. This happens in chapter Two, if you know this timeline, then you would understand that what is going on here, the Lord God taking the man and putting him in the garden to work it and to keep it, happens in the Garden of Eden prior to any sin ever being committed by Adam or eventually by Eve. The communicated reality of this verse then is this. Before there was sin, there was work. Now after there is sin, there's still work. And it's been affected by sin. We'll touch on that in a moment. But it's important to see this. Before there was sin, there was work. Which means this is a kind of work that is not inherently bad. In fact, I, I would contend this is the kind of work that really outlines and expresses what vocational work really is. Timothy Keller defines it like this when he says, A job is truly a vocation if someone else calls you to do it and you do it for them rather than for yourself. It is, keyword, reimagining as a mission of service to go beyond, to, to, go, to do something beyond merely our own interests. Do you think about it like this? God makes the garden, the carbon, the atoms, the necessary biological processes, the order of nature, the ecology of life. And then he puts Adam in to work it and to keep it. And from that moment to this one, every single person that has ever been breathing has been a gardener. <laughs> You've been given something to work and to keep. This became a prototype for life. Think about it like this. As a child, you were perhaps given a soccer ball in a field to play on, and you were taught how to handle the ball, to pass, to shoot, to work as a team. You were given something to work and to keep. 
as a student, you are given problems to solve, prompts to write. You're being prepared through your education to face chaos and bring clarity in art or code or words or math or science or construction or hospitality or user experience or medicine or teaching or language or a hundred other things. Problems you did not create using materials that you did not create that were given to you so that you could use them to create. You were given something as a student in your classes to work and to keep. One day, should you get married and perhaps have a child, you will look at the miracle of that baby and understand that your role as a parent is not so far removed from your role as a gardener. You cultivate and care for what you've been given. You tend to the garden of their soul and their life. You don't just raise children, but ultimately adults entrusted with a child to care for, given to work and to keep. Every human being, in some way, is a gardener. So just consider this for a second. Genesis 1 articulates that we are made in the image and likeness of God. To be made in the image and likeness of the creator actually answers the question that you may never have asked, but kind of floats around, which is why do we desire so often to create? That we have actually been given, you have been given something to work and to keep. Perhaps right now it's an education or a job in the future, maybe a career or a family. But there's beauty and truth and goodness in the reality of work. Which means that we can remember our nature as humans made in the image of God. Who in turn go and make things as a dim but resonant reflection of how God made us. This is the original intent of vocational work. That it would actually be a place of purpose in our lives. Not ultimate purpose, but that in making, we would remember that we were made by a maker. And in creating, we would remember that we were created by a creator. That every human being would live into that as a gardener. Every human's a gardener. Every human's also been affected by sin. Sin that walks through the elements of your calling and creates separation. Sin that separates us from God. Sin that separates us from each other and our core relationships. Sin that separates our work from its original intent and makes it something else. Sin that brings brokenness into churches. Sin that help keeps us, sorry, sin that keeps us from loving our neighbors. And in Genesis chapter 3, there's a clear word towards the effect of this separation of sin in relation to work. It'll be up on the screen. This is the curse told to Adam as a result of his sin, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, you've eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face, or, or sometimes translated by your toil, by your work, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, you are dust, and to dust you shall Return. Real quick on this verse, by the way, this is not God blaming Eve for the Adam's of actions of Adam. It's blaming Adam for his own actions. God's directly addressed Eve. God is now directly addressing Adam. I'm only saying that because I've got a lot of thoughts for people who use this as a framework for blame shifting their problems to other people, specifically women, and none of those thoughts are good. Done. Moving on. Uh, second, we, we see something here that's really interesting. Where work was once a place of purpose... It's now, as a result of sin, a place of pain. The work of Adam remains, but the experience of that work under sin has changed. Now, to be clear, 
Sin does not have the final say in the life of the Christian. Jesus Christ, through his life, death, burial, and resurrection, through the gospel, does the redemptive work of bringing us back to God through himself. He really does make all things new. As such, he brings us also back to each other in our core relationships, in our churches, in our communities. He is our motivation to love our neighbors, to show mercy as we've been shown mercy. And as he redeems and renews our minds through his word, we are brought back in touch with the present reality of the original intent for our vocational work. But in our present reality, in our reality, we live in this in-between that feels like our vocational work is a meeting place between purpose and pain. Maybe you felt that. It's the moment where you're studying and you're like galaxy brain in your context, in your stu- whatever you're studying, and you're like, I get this. I understand what I'm studying. I see the way forward. That moment of studying Combined with the collective moment of absolute drudgery as you stare at a screen and try to figure out which line of code has an accidental comma in it. Or when you can't read another page on the difference between conventionally reinforced versus pre-stressed concrete. Or when a teacher, as a teacher, you experience the joy of a student getting it and the empathy and pain for a student when they threaten you. It's purpose and pain coming together in work. When we experience this purpose and pain, our bodies often go into a survival mode where we have a tendency to adapt by cornering ourselves off into often one of two extremes as it relates to attitudes towards our work. So we're going to hit these three extremes. For some of us, we adapt by taking the attitude of work as utility. That's how we see work. Work is utility. Work as utility reminds me of Marshawn Lynch a few years ago, if you remember this famous interview, where he just showed up at a press conference, and for every question they asked him, he said, you know the line, anyone know the line? I'm just here so I don't get fined, right? I'm just here so I don't get fined. That's how you can approach work sometimes. That's how maybe you can approach your education sometimes. I'm just here so I don't get fined. Hilarious moment, loved watching it in real time because I'm old, but it's actually the attitude that some people have towards work. I'm just here so I don't get fined, or I'm just here so I don't get fired. I'm just here to get my paycheck. I'm just here to do the least that I can, fly under the radar, keep my job, and keep it pushing. Ultimately, this attitude has very little actually to do with what you're doing and often very much to do with your disposition towards your work. It's often a very subtly selfish mentality. I'm here for me, not for others. I play for me and not for us. Work as utility looks at vocational work as a meeting point between purpose and pain and says it's all pain and there's no purpose here. I just need to get paid so I can cover my bills, go out this weekend, forget about my job until Sunday night when reality sneaks back in and I realize I've got to be at the office tomorrow at 9. Work as utility for the Christian will mess with you. Specifically, it will mess with your witness. In Colossians 3, verses 23 through 24, Paul writes, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. The way that people do one thing is often indicative or at least interpreted as the way they do most things. So let's say you're at work and you have a work as utility mentality and mindset and you meet somebody at work and you've been doing that kind of for a while, work as utility, I'm just here so I don't get fined. And then you sit down with somebody and you start to share the gospel with them and you start to think, oh, now my work has purpose because I'm getting to share the gospel with this person. But the problem is that to that point, your work has been your witness. 
The person that's seen you do the bare minimum, seen you complain about your employer, slip in and slip out, they look at you, you say you're a Christian, and if you're the first Christian they've ever seen up close and gotten to know, their thought might be, okay, so Christians don't care about the workplace and are selfish at work. Got it. I wonder if that's how Christians treat everything. They might actually look at you and I like, I wonder if that's how their God treats everything. Work as utility will mess with your witness. Just work as utility. You might hear that and your skin crawls when you hear that description. And that might be because you, like me, experience the other attitude that is so often adopted towards work. Not work as utility, but work as idolatry. This is where work becomes everything. Work is what I worship. My grade tells me who I am. The performance report tells me who I am. I have a sacred text, and it's my employee handbook or my textbook. I have a church, and it's the staff meeting or the classroom. I have a C group, and it's my team or my group project crew. A communion is coffee and snacks in the break room. Worship music is the silence of a full room of people with their AirPods in and clacking keyboards. I have a God, and he's my boss. I have a congregation, and it's my market I'm selling to, my classroom or my peers. You see your work starting to become an idol when you desire success at work more than you desire anything else. When your work feels more precious to you and the outcome of it feels more precious to you than Christ does. When pressures come in and your immediate reaction, my immediate reaction is to stay up later, do more, depend more on me, isolate more. Instead of, God forbid, asking for help from others or from God. It's when I don't rejoice in the reward that other people in my workplace experience and instead feel resentment towards them when all of work becomes a competition and I have to be at the top of it. Work is an idol when it's what I orient my life around. You guys know people that are maybe like this with football, like they orient their lives around football in a way where they're like, I enjoy football. I, my, my wife has taught me how to enjoy football, right? She's a diehard Packers fan and has been for a long time. It's incredible. I love it. Um, but she doesn't, like, look at it and say, babe, if the Packers game is on, like, we can't see anybody for two hours before or two hours after because we really got to make sure that we catch everything before everything after and we can't be interrupted. Like, she doesn't orient her life around it in a way where it is the only thing in her life. We, with work, there's some people that enjoy their work. And there's some people that orient their lives so fully around work that it's as if there is nothing else true about them other than they're an employee at X place. Work is idolatry, if we can just bring it here, is often in the air here in Madison. From campus to Capitol Square, it's in the air that we breathe. It creates a prove-it mindset that creates this intense cultural anxiety both in students and professionals and creates an intense need to blow off steam wherever you can, however you can, just to survive. Work as idolatry elevates purpose over pain and says, I will work so hard and get so much so that I never experience pain again. Work as idolatry often comes out of insecurity as we attempt to outwork our pain, which is futile. This is the Instagram guru who wants to sell you their course. And while you don't buy their course, you may buy their philosophy. And it will crush you. Like work as utility, work as idolatry will also mess with you. It will mess with our worship. Exodus chapter 20, God gives Moses ten commandments, and right at the top are these two. Verse 3 you will have of Exodus 20, you will have no other gods before me. Verses 4 and 5, you will not make for yourself an idol, you will not bow down to them or serve them. It's so easy for work to slowly and yet so quickly become an idol. It happened, it happened to me in my first job. This is what I actively 
fight against as it relates to my work and my vocation. Happened to me slowly after I graduated. It was just a little more here, another yes here, another picked up project, another picked up meeting. In some instances, another picked up role. Before the end of my first semester, after I graduated, I was working close to 80 to 85 hours a week. I took one week of vacation in my first two years, and it was two. And I spent it watching the dogs at my boss's house. Like, that's like, it's like so bad, guys. Like, it's unhealthy. It was such an idolatrous picture of work. This work as idolatry stemmed from an insecurity that made me orient my identity around this one sentence. I will prove to my boss that I'm valuable. And it crushed me. Crushed me, it crushed my relationship with God, and ultimately it crushed me because my worship was directed towards my work. Utility and idolatry, we often have these two common attitudes that we can slip in and out of in some way or slip between. Both have destructive tendencies. Both mess with you. They'll mess with the people you work for. Eventually, they will mess with the people who work for you. Thankfully, there's a third way, and it's work as, as worship. Or perhaps work in a redemptive vision for all of life. Let's zoom way out. The gospel of Jesus Christ cultivates a redemptive vision for life as you understand the gospel as God's redemptive vision for you. You and I were lost in our sin, so God sends Jesus to redeem us of our sin. We had a debt that we could not pay, and in our forgiveness received from Jesus, that debt is lifted off of us and was put onto him on the cross. And not only was that given to him, his right standing and position as a son, a child of God, is then given to us in exchange. So not only are we forgiven, we're justified and adopted as a Christian. You're made right with God forever, and you're made a son or a daughter of God forever. In a word, you've been redeemed. You were one thing, and your condition was one way, and now it's another way, a new way, a better way. You were separate from God, but now Jesus says, I am with you always. You can dwell with God because he's redeemed you and chosen for you to be with him. You can experience life with God because of the gospel wherever you are, which is a redemptive way of looking at the world, of looking at everything. We zoomed out, let's zoom back in. It's a redemptive way of looking at your work. Now to be clear, a public understanding of a redemptive vision for life starts with private cultivation of a redemptive vision for life. That's why we started this series with solitude and Bible and prayer and worship. Private practices that are the building blocks of cultivating a relationship with Christ who is the Redeemer so that you would start to see the world in the way that the Redeemer sees it. Through a lens of redemption, a a redemptive view of all of life. You experience God with him in private and it leads to you experiencing life with him in public. That's this beautiful flow. It doesn't mean that you're weird or belligerent in the places that you work. It means that you're attentive to God and to the people around you and curious about how the two are overlapping at your school, at your home, and at your work. Work as worship simply means coming into work with Jesus on the forefront of your mind. Coming into work with a mentality that says, what I do is important, but it is not my God. I was created by a creator to create. I was made by a maker to make. And this is how I get to do that right now. I get to worship God through the context of my work. It doesn't mean that you stand on your desk and preach. It means you make something excellent where you work. It doesn't mean that you sweat it out about should I pray out loud for my lunch or not. It means you don't cheat and you work with integrity. 
It means you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you love your workplace neighbor as you love yourself. It means you don't look at the people around you as background scenery or useful machinery, but through the eyes of Jesus as ministry, as people you get to serve and love as you work with them or to serve as they work for you. Work as worship takes a redemptive view towards pain and purpose that work becomes his meeting place for. Work as worship looks at the reality of the pain of work due to sin and remembers that if your soul could be redeemed by Jesus, then so can your work. If you will be with him in, in for eternity and if he is with you always, that means he's with you right in your cubicle, right at your POS, right at your laptop, right in the library. Looks at pain and says, if he can redeem my soul, he can redeem my work. Work as worship also looks at the reality of purpose and remembers that you've been put where you are to work and to keep the garden in front of you. But that garden was given to you. Great purpose and the opportunity of creating and keeping and working and great humility in understanding that even if you become a solo entrepreneur, your hands, your mind, the raw materials that make up the creation of your computer, the product that you're selling, all of those were given to you by a maker. That Christ's purpose for you was redemption and now redemption becomes your vision for all of your life in Christ. If you find yourself with a bend towards utility and work, work with worship will mess with your ambition as you start to think, I'm not actually just doing this for me, but my work is representative of the God that I claim to worship. It's more than not getting fined and not getting fired, but my work actually says something about me. It says something about how I treat others, and it says something about the God I claim to follow. If idolatry is your bent, as it has been for me, work is worship will mess with your rest. You see, right after these words in Genesis, there's the first usage of the word holy. And God, interestingly, doesn't say it about himself, although he is holy. And he doesn't say it about us. And he doesn't say it about the earth. The first time the word holy is used, it's in relation to God calling a day holy. A day of rest holy. Resting on the seventh day and establishing that day as set apart. So God didn't need to rest, he chose to. It wasn't to recover, but it was to enjoy what he had made. So if idolatry is your struggle, Sabbath and rest is the counter practice that God has given from the second chapter of the Bible as a means of you to remember that he's God and you're not and neither is your work. The rest isn't something that you earn through hard work and you don't just rest so that you can go and work harder. But rest is a gift from God for us to return to our humanity, to rest from work for a little while and enjoy what's in front of us. That we don't work to rest and we don't rest to work, but rather we work from a rested place. Remember that work isn't God, it's a tool, it's a gift, it's a garden given to us by God to remember him as creator, us as creation and our being made in his image. So now we get to go and create. Work as worship leads to a flourishing in our vocation as we have a redemptive vision for life as we dwell with God. It's Ephesians 5, 16 on display where Paul says to redeem the hours. We get to literally take our time back. That 90,000 to 100,000 hours of life that we spend at work and redeem it as a means by which we can dwell with God as we worship him through our work. Like, can you just imagine what your life would be like if you had 90 to 100,000 more hours of just being attentive to God in the midst of what you were doing. Ten and a half more years of dwelling with God in some way, shape, or form through your work. What could God do in you through that? 
What could God do? What work of redemption could he do through you as you look at life around you through a redemptive lens? I want to give you three practices that I think can help you do that. And then I'm going to take my seat and we'll sing. The three really practical ways to do this. Uh, number one, you need to just be honest and be active about where you're actually at. This is another way of saying you need to confess and do something about it. You need to be honest about your attitude and active to do something about it. You see, the grace of God is strength for you to respond when something's revealed. So be honest and by grace, be active. You need to start where you are right now as a student or in your part-time or entry-level job. Who you are is who you are. Don't make the excuse of I'll change later. Take steps now. Be, it starts with being honest and being active. So do you look at work as utility? Just be honest about it. And then be active to reframe your perspective of work, to say, actually, work isn't just something where I'm pushing a pin and just pushing it, punching a clock. It's actually a means by which I'm saying something about who I am, who I see others to be, and ultimately who God is. If you look at work as idolatry, you need to be honest about that. And you need to be active to rest, that to treat as holy what God actually calls holy, and learn to promise you, you can learn how to enjoy your rest <laughs> and not look at it as this like inconvenient thing that you have to push aside. You can actually come to the end of a day and say, it's enough for today and go to sleep. That's possible. It might be an act of faith for some of us, but it's possible. You actually do see your work as worship. Your activity there is to redeem and to continue to redeem. I, I have a ritual that I was more disciplined in for the last several years um, where before every meeting I'll try to find or every place that I'm in, I'll try to find a moment when I can pull aside and very quickly pray, Lord, help me to redeem the time and tend to this garden. No matter what it is, just to have that perspective on my mind as I walk into a meeting with one of you or a leader meeting or before I get up to preach or before I walk into a two hour long production and teacher meeting on Tuesday afternoon with whatever it is, Lord, help me to redeem this time and to tend to this garden. You need to be honest and active about where you're at. Number two, you need to remember that private dwelling leads to public dwelling. So who you are in private is who you are. So cultivate a dwelling with God in private, experiencing life with him in solitude, in scripture, in prayer, in worship. And as you do, just watch as your vision of life changes, as you see it through his eyes and not the culture around you. What you do in private will form who you are in public. So you can dwell with God in private and watch what happens as you experience life with him wherever you are, including your vocation, and develop a redemptive view of life and of work. The third thing is this, and Molly is up there. Great. A redemptive vision for life and for work starts with a redemptive vision for yourself. You need to understand that before you ever look at work or your life through a redemptive lens, that you were first looked at by God in a redemptive way. That God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. That while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. That he who knew no sin became sin for us 
so that we might become the very righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. He has taken everything, every sin, every single piece that separated us from God, and in its place, he has given us righteousness, He's given us belonging with God, acceptance from God, assurance that as surely as Christ rose from the grave is as sure as we will live with him in eternity forever. We have been redeemed by God through Christ, Christian. That's where every aspect of looking at work or life or school or relationships or anything around you begins. A redemptive vision for life starts with the redemptive vision for yourself. If you want to see things through the lens of the gospel, you need to constantly be remembering the good news of the gospel towards you. And you experience this reality that Richard Gaffin called, where he said, when you understand that redemption has been accomplished for you, it will only be logical that that same redemption is applied to all of the things that are around you. What has been accomplished by Christ is then applied to your work and to your school and to your life and to your relationships. It's a different way. It's a means by which you actually see everything through this dwelling perspective of experiencing all of life with God wherever you are. That might seem really large. <laughs> that might seem really big. But you start with just the thing that's in front of you. You start with the thing tomorrow. You start with the class tomorrow, the shift tomorrow, the person tomorrow, the roommate tomorrow, the girlfriend tomorrow, the boyfriend tomorrow. You start with the, just the thing that's in front of you tomorrow. And then the next thing, and the next thing, and the next thing, as you remember the redemption that's come to you, and then you get to apply that redemption to every aspect and area of your life. It's the model that we see in Christ. Here's the beauty, when we fail to do that, Christ is our mediator, forgiving us for our failure. And he's our means of doing that, giving us the grace by which we actually can be strengthened to take our next step, to remember his redemption and apply it to the things that are around us. I'm gonna ask you just to, just to close your eyes, bow your heads just for a moment of focus and, and concentration. Message like this can be odd. It's talking about work, it's talking about these different things, but it, it's so important to remember that first, the only way to have a redemptive vision of work or anything is to remember the redemptive vision for you. So have you trusted in Christ who is the redeemer? Have you put your trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and savior? Have you turned from the sin that separates you from him and trusted in Jesus as your savior? Redemption is available to you. You could do that tonight. If you're in here and you're a Christian, I wanna ask you to take a little bit of time to ask God to help you continue to or strengthen a redemptive vision for life and for work around you. That if you find yourself in life and work as utility or work as idolatry, that you take a little bit of time to just say, God, help me to actually see my work as a way to worship you. My school is a way to worship you. Help me to see how I'm a gardener and you've given me a garden to work and to keep. Help me to see how I'm, I'm created by a creator to create. Help me. Maybe that's the simple prayer you need to pray. 
And as you do, just, just let him bend your mind a little bit to help you see how incredible and how beautiful and how present he is, how, how, how intricately involved he is and how incredible it is that he would create us in his image so that we might come alongside him even in some of this shadow of creation. Let that just astound you for a moment as you ask for help. Take a moment, however you need to respond, and then we'll sing. We'll remember his redemption in song, and then we'll go, and we'll apply his redemption in our life.